praying with you all, I felt like, oh, I, I think that maybe I should be learning from you how to adore our Lord because your faith in Jesus's real presence in the Blessed Sacrament is just evident by uh, your presence here and uh, just praying with you. I, I was feeling it already, so thank you for that. Um, so, like Lisa said, my name is Sister Fiat, and I'm a sister of St. Francis of Perpetual Adoration. Um, so I'm honored to share with you a little bit about my love for Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament and um, just kind of what he's put on my heart uh, as we are in this time of Eucharistic revival. So as you know, the Eucharistic revival that we're in right now in the church in America is due to that Pew study that came out a few years ago um, where we learned that a third of self-described Catholics only one-third agree that Jesus is really present in the Eucharist, that they agree with the church's teaching on transubstantiation. So I don't know about you, but that kind of broke my heart to learn that two-thirds of my fellow brothers and sisters in the church don't agree uh, with what the church teaches on transubstantiation, that in our beautiful little Eucharist, it's actually Jesus' body, blood, soul, and divinity. Now there is hope as I delved into it, not all of those two-thirds actually know what the church teaches. So there's hope for us and a call to evangelize and teach them the truth. Um, but as I was just kind of thinking about this, I realized it's really an example of our culture at large. Um, our culture, I think in many ways, has lost a sense of reverence and so people who don't believe in Jesus' real presence, it's just an example of the loss of reverence. So yesterday I attended a funeral for one of my sister's family members. And as we were driving to the burial site, one of the sisters in the car commented, people don't even stop for funeral processions anymore. And while we were there, I noticed one of the workers as he was lowering the casket had one of those little AirPods in his ears, and I thought he's listening to music or something while he's um, laying this body to rest. So those to me were just prime examples of the lack of reverence in the world that you and I live in. Um, I think we also see it in a sense of entitlement that a lot of people carry, and just in a loss of the Christian culture and Christian ethics and respect for people that we're conversing with. Um, I don't know about you, but I've often felt like those that I'm talking to, uh, like I'm a burden to them or I'm in their way. They got more important things to do. Uh, even those that, like it's their job to interact with you, right? Uh, anyway, so I've just been thinking a lot about this loss of reverence and how it kind of ties to the Eucharist. So I just wanna discuss a little bit the virtue of reverence and some of kind of sister virtues that I think go along with this one. So first, let's just look at what is reverence. Well, it comes from the Latin, which, and it means awe or respect. And I would add, in the presence of something sacred. Uh, so a uh, wonderful Catholic philosopher, Dietrich von Hildebrand, called reverence the mother of all virtues, because none of them can possibly blossom without being animated by a feeling of awe for the greatness of creation a creation that clearly points to a creator. And another philosopher in commenting on von Hildebrand says, it's most appropriate 
to refer to reverence as the mother of all virtues, for it's the image of a mother revering the delicate beauty of her newborn child that offers us its most convincing example. How true is that? When you see an infant, don't you just want to gaze at them? I always ask new parents, how do you ever do anything with this beautiful child? Don't you just find yourself staring at them all the time? <laughs> to which they always say yes. <laughs> um, because of that sense of reverence that an infant gives us a, a kind of timelessness that we could just gaze upon them. Uh, but like I mentioned, we just live in a culture that doesn't have this reverence anymore. And I think a big part of that is actually because of a loss of the sense of the sacred. People don't even realize there is sacredness around us, that there's something greater than ourselves. And so then we lose the reverential awe that comes from encountering the sacred. So I think that you and I are called to a revival of reverence um, in our world. Um, and, and so we'll talk a little bit about how to cultivate this virtue, but. Some of the things that, that reverence leads to are a sense of wonder, um, a sense of contentment and peace, and gratitude. So I just want to lean in a little bit to gratitude. It's a very fitting virtue for the Eucharist because the word Eucharistia literally means Thanksgiving. Um, so my favorite, probably my favorite prayer of gratitude comes from the Jewish tradition it's called the Dayanu, which is a Hebrew word that means it would have been enough. So this prayer is a song that's traditionally sung at every Passover, and it tells the story of the Exodus. Um, it's Israel's prayer of gratitude for this key moment of salvation history in the Exodus. And the word Dayanu literally means it would have been enough. So this prayer is basically calling to mind God's fidelity and saying, God, it would have been enough if you did X, but you also did Y. So I'm just going to read it to you real quick. It's a beautiful prayer. So every time you hear that phrase, it would have been enough, that's the die in you. But I'm not going to try to do it in Hebrew, though that would be fun. I don't know Hebrew. <laughs> okay. It would have... If he had taken us out of Egypt and not made judgments on the Egyptians, it would have been enough for us. If he had made judgments on them and had, not, and had made them on their gods, and had not made them on their gods, excuse me, it would have been enough for us. If he had made them on their gods and had not killed their firstborn, it would have been enough for us. If he had killed their firstborn and had not given us their money, it would have been enough for us. If he had given us their money and had not split the sea for us, it would have been enough for us. If he had split the sea for us and had not taken us through it on dry land, it would have been enough for us. If he had taken us through it on dry land and had not pushed down our enemies in the sea, it would have been enough for us. If he had pushed down our enemies in the sea and had not supplied our needs in the wilderness for 40 years, it would have been enough for us. If he had supplied our needs in the wilderness for 40 years and had not fed us the manna, it would have been enough for us. 
If he had fed us the manna and had not given us the Shabbat, that's the Sabbath, it would have been enough for us. If he had given us the Shabbat and had not brought us close to Mount Sinai, it would have been enough for us. If he had brought us close to Mount Sinai and had not given us the Torah, it would have been enough for us. If he had given us the Torah and had not brought us into the land of Israel, it would have been enough for us. If he had brought us into the land of Israel and had not built us the chosen house, that is the temple, it would have been enough for us. I just find that so beautiful. And that's just a snippet of God's faithfulness to his people Israel. Just the work of Exodus. Um, their exodus from, from Egypt and becoming into the promised land, into the temple. Um, so God just continually outdoes himself in fidelity to Israel. Um, and this is a prayer of memory. So for um, the Israelites, memory is so important. And the word remember has a much deeper meaning than it does for us in our culture and in our language. So if we think, even in English, to remember, to remember or remember again is to put back together as a whole. So whenever I remember what God has done for me, uh, I'm putting myself back together as a whole. It reminds me who I am, where I come from. Um, But this sense of remembering for Israel and actually for the Catholic Church isn't just something God did in the past for my ancestors, but it's something he did for me. So even a modern-day Jew would say, God has delivered me from Egypt, not because he did it back then, but he's literally done it for me. Um, And and this remembering is to make present again. But that that memory isn't just in the past, but here and now. Now what I love about this prayer is God's response. I think this dying you of Israel is met with God saying, it isn't enough. Because God always longs for more. For him, it isn't enough to satisfy his longing for his people. Like once, he's just going to keep doing it. So I think Jesus says this to us often. For Jesus to become man wasn't actually enough. To suffer death wasn't enough. To rise from the dead, not enough yet. To send the Holy Spirit wasn't enough. To come continually in what appears as bread isn't enough. To dwell inside of our flesh whenever we receive him isn't enough. Because his love can't be satisfied He just burns for more. And it's not enough for him to do these things because that doesn't satisfy his longing for you and his longing to express his love for you. How beautiful. Uh, The church, his bride, the church who is you, each of us, is irresistible to Jesus. He loves the idea of you. He loves you. Uh, And he says, I I can't get enough of you. I'm crazy about you, and and I always want more. So I think it's out of this place for God of it isn't enough that 
he gives us the gift of Eucharistic adoration, which somehow still isn't enough for him. Um, but adoration has just this sense of timelessness with it. I don't know if you've ever felt that in the presence of Jesus in adoration where it's like, whoa, an hour's over. Or you're like, I've definitely been here for three hours and it was two minutes because you just, you just stepped outside time for a minute. <laughs> but when we're before his presence, like, is that not eternity? That's where we're headed. That's the goal of heaven is just to be before his presence and to adore him. Mother, Blessed Mother Maria Theresia, the foundress of the Sisters of St. Francis of Perpetual Adoration, wrote her sisters in a letter and said, Ah, yes, what countless graces the Lord bestows on us during the quiet hours of adoration. Let us fulfill this obligation faithfully. Then we can look forward to our last hour with confidence. For in eternity we shall continue the loving labor of our grateful hearts, the adoration of God. In heaven, we'll just continue what we're doing here these days of 40 hours. But Jesus won't be veiled behind the, the form of the Eucharist. He'll be truly uh, present to us in his human body, even though this is his human body, right? <laughs> but we'll actually see it with our eyes. He'll be unveiled. Uh, the psalmist in Psalm 42 says, These things will I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would lead the rejoicing crowd into the house of God amid cries of gladness and thanksgiving, the throng wild with joy. So as we know, adoration, um, in kind of its basic sense of the word, means to worship God, to adore him. So adoration is about worshiping him just like we're going to do for all of eternity. Um, sometimes when I'm in adoration, though, I can feel a little overwhelmed by how to worship the Lord. <laughs> sometimes I just uh, feel like I get lost in what that looks like. And perhaps what to do in the context of adoration is for another talk, because there's a lot there. In fact, there's a beautiful handout in the back of church, actually by both entrances, with some guidelines. Um, but I just want to give you one uh, alternative idea of how we worship the Lord. And I think it's actually just to be receptive, just to receive from him. Because he comes to us in his blessed sacrament as pure gift. And he comes uh, because he wants to give his love, to give himself. So when we receive him, receive his love, that's just worshiping him. Um, a spiritual writer that I, I like a lot, Jean Vanier, uh, says that prayer is nothing else than a child resting in the Father's arms, saying yes. This yes was the prayer of Jesus to the Father. We see it all over the Gospels in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done, when he said, my food is to do the will of my Father. Jesus was totally captivated by the Father's will. He was always focused on it and was always saying yes to the Father's will. And that was his worship of the Father. So like Jesus, we can say yes because the Father's will is always good for us. 
Sometimes we forget it or can't understand how, but it is always good. So we can always say yes to it. Now, Our Lady is the prime example of this, right? Uh, she's like the best example of receptivity. At the Annunciation, when the angel Gabriel came to her, asked her to be the mother of God, even though she didn't understand it all, she said yes. She assented. She offered her fiat. Now, the church tradition has Mary, before the angel Gabriel came to her, in prayer. I like to think she was praying some form of the die in you, a prayer of gratitude for God's fidelity to his people Israel and to her personally. So I think it's from this place of gratitude that she can receive the Lord, say, yes, he can dwell inside of me. And then that just leads to further gratitude. So gratitude leads to receptivity, which leads to gratitude. As we receive more and more and more and meet that sense of God who wants to give us more and more and more. Now Mary is also a wonderful example of gratitude, of the virtue of thanksgiving, particularly in her prayer that we call the Magnificat, uh, which is the prayer that she prayed um, at the visitation. Um, it's just her prayer of thanks to God for what he's done for the Israelites, for her, again, a prayer recalling his fidelity and remembering, remembering to being present again, his fidelity to Israel and to her. So you may have heard this prayer. It's in the Gospel of Luke, but I'm just going to read it for you, and you can join me in praying it. So Mary said, My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on his lowly servant. From this day, all generations will call me blessed. The Almighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. He has mercy on those who fear him in every generation. He has shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud in their conceit. He has cast down the mighty from their thrones and has lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has come to the help of his servant Israel, for he has remembered his promise of mercy, the promise he made to our fathers, to Abraham and his children forever. Again, we kind of, uh, kind of parallel that die in you of just... He's doing all these extraordinary things. His faithfulness just cannot be enumerated. <laughs> um, so gratitude is one of uh, kind of the sister virtues, I suppose, of, of reverence. Um, and then the other one that I want to talk about is tenderness. Now, reverence and tenderness are really similar. Um, but the virtue of tenderness, the word itself comes from um, some Latin and French words that I'm not going to try to pronounce, but they mean, <laughs> sounds like tender, you know, uh, they mean to reach out, listen, and eventually help others in a gentle or a soft way. That makes sense. That's what we think of with tenderness. We think of gentleness, delicacy, softness of touch. Pope Francis, in his encyclical Evangelii Gaudium, says, the Son of God, by becoming flesh, summoned us 
to the revolution of tenderness. I love that phrase, the revolution of tenderness. That's what the incarnation brings about. So Pope Francis also spoke about Eucharistic tenderness um, a lot uh, a few years ago, but I just discovered this phrase and I've been spending a lot of time looking for it in everything he's written and said, Eucharistic tenderness. Um, so that phrase comes from a hymn in the Argentinian breviary for Evening Prayer 1 for the Solemnity of St. Joseph, which is cool because I like to think of Joseph as the model of Eucharistic tenderness. Um, so essentially, the, the hymn, it doesn't really translate, and I don't speak Spanish enough to try to translate for you, but... Um, Basically, it's asking that St. Joseph would take care of the church with Eucharistic tenderness, just like he treated Mary and Jesus with Eucharistic tenderness. So Pope Francis says, this Eucharistic tenderness, this is how we should treat brothers with Eucharistic tenderness. We need to caress conflicts. I recall when Pope Paul VI received a child's letter with many drawings. Paul said that the reception of such a letter on a desk covered only with letters that dealt with problems did him a lot of good. Tenderness does us good. Eucharistic tenderness does not mask conflict, but rather helps us to confront it in people. So Pope Francis primarily talks about Eucharistic tenderness actually in the way that we treat one another. Um, so we'll talk about that in a minute, but it made me curious, what else does Eucharistic tenderness look like? Uh, I think it looks like, obviously, the way that we encounter Jesus in the Eucharist. So in Mass, um, just the posture of our body when we come up to receive him. Uh, the way we walk back to our pew, how we genuflect, um, the way we, we recollect ourselves or bring ourselves into his presence in prayer, the way we listen to the word proclaimed. In adoration or other forms of prayer, especially in, in the church before his Eucharistic presence, I think our Eucharistic tenderness looks like um, the silence that we keep before his presence as a sign that something sacred is here. Again, the way we genuflect our posture, how we hold ourselves. And then in our life with others, our Eucharistic tenderness looks like how we receive one another. Are we kind, patient, humble, generous, selfless? Are we tender with one another? Um, I, I recently found an example of Eucharistic tenderness toward Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament that's really been captivating my mind. So um, it was a girl in China, and the, the stories aren't consistent, um, so the details vary. Either this happened during the Boxer Revolution in the 1900s or during the communist takeover by Mao Zedong in the 1950s. So one or the other. But um, during one of these uh, times when the church was being persecuted, um, there was a parish uh, that was ransacked and the tabernacle was overturned. 
leaving the consecrated hosts on the ground. Now the parish priest um, was either he hid in the rectory nearby and could see this happening, or he was imprisoned in the rectory. Again, it's not quite clear, but regardless, he could see, and he knew there were 32 hosts in the sanctuary, or in the tabernacle. Now there was a young girl, a parishioner, uh, she was probably 10 or 11, who saw this happen. And so after the officers left, at night she snuck into the church. She knelt down before Jesus, scattered on the floor, and made a holy hour. Knelt before him for an hour in prayer. And then, uh, tenderly, she bowed down and received Jesus on her tongue, one host. And she left. And the next night, she came back, snuck into the church, made a holy hour, bowed down, and received the host. Now we can think this was uh, before the Second Vatican Council, so this girl had probably been taught not to touch the host with her hands, that that was reserved for the priest, and that she could only receive Jesus once a day. So this is why uh, she only received one host a day. But she went on to do this for 32 nights to receive every single host that had been scattered on the ground. And actually on the last night, she was found by the police and she was killed and she became a Eucharistic martyr. Now that story um, is really powerful, right? And Fulton Sheen actually heard this story and he said it was that story that led him to decide to make a daily holy hour. Uh, and he was a huge promoter of this in the church in America, particularly for priests. Now it's kind of standard practice. A priest will make a daily holy hour. That's because of Fulton Sheen's um, preaching of it because of this little Chinese martyr. So she has led to um, countless people's fidelity to spending time with Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament. Um, I think uh, also, I think that we can be tender and reverent with Jesus like this, actually because he is with us first. So uh, I just want to share how I've experienced this in my life. So I've always been kind of a type A, go-getter person, felt like I was pretty successful in what uh, the challenges before me and often thought I can do anything I set my mind to. Okay. Well, I realize in hindsight that was, that's actually just perfectionism in me um, because sometimes I think I need to earn people's love and I need to prove myself. Um, and the way that I succeed at being this perfectionism is often driven by a lot of self-judgment, uh, negativity toward myself, and self-condemnation. So a few years ago, I was starting to realize the inner motivation behind some of this in me. And it was pretty painful. Um, paired with that, I was just going through a season of a lot of struggle in my life. I was struggling in my kind of formation as a sister. I was struggling emotionally, spiritually, psychologically. Just felt like there was a lot of pain and darkness surrounding me all the time. It was a season that felt like an explosion of self-knowledge, and I felt like the explosion was imploding me. 
Uh, specifically, I was growing an awareness of my defense mechanisms, of some painful memories and wounds, and how all of that has negatively affects me and continue to. So one day, I was just so tired of, of this pain, and I was once again before the Lord begging for relief. I asked him just to remove the, the wounds that I was aware of, remove my defense mechanisms, all this sense of hurt. And so tenderly, um, I just felt Jesus say within me, I love you too much to amputate your heart. Um, and he gave me the sense that all these things in my life, uh, these places and memories and wounds, like they're part of me. They're part of my story, and they formed me into who I am today. And because of that, Jesus is going to treat these places so tenderly because they're precious or sacred to him because of how close they are to me. I did not think that, but um, I just, in that, that experience with him in prayer, just had such a sense that God is in awe of me, that he cherishes me, that he honors me, that he reverences me. Which is crazy, because we reverence something which is sacred, greater than ourselves. So how could Jesus reverence me? But that is what he communicated to me. Now, I still struggled after that prayer, um, and, and I would say learning to accept myself and to reverence myself has been a slow work uh, for years and probably will continue to be for years to come. But I very frequently receive strength and comfort from returning to this prayer. And when I find myself in places of self-condemnation, I remember the Lord reverences me. So I can treat myself with compassion and patience. And in turn, I'm, I'm starting to see that also lead to increased patience and compassion and reverence for others in my life, which is a miracle, believe me. <laughs> uh, so Jean Vanier says that the wound in all of us, which we're all trying to flee, can become the place of meeting with God and with brothers and sisters. It can become the place of ecstasy and of the eternal wedding feast. The loneliness and feelings of inferiority which we are running from become the place of liberation and salvation. That is what I have and continue to experience. And I believe that is what the Lord wants all of us to experience particularly through his Eucharistic presence. So this experience has um, shown me I can only reverence myself and others if Jesus, because Jesus reverences me first. In fact, I can only be reverent toward him because he's first reverent with me. So I want to talk about what his reverence and his gratitude toward us look like. Now, we're going to just, we can only really talk about reverence, Jesus' reverence toward us by analogy, because like I said, uh, we're not greater than him, <laughs> but somehow he seems to act as though we are. <laughs> um, but he is always tender with us and always grateful toward us. 
uh, Isaiah, the, the prophet Isaiah, reminds us of, of God's perspective toward us. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, that's just one example of the countless scripture verses that speak of the Lord's tenderness and his gratitude toward his people. It's all over the scriptures. Um, so his, uh, I was just curious, like, yeah, God reverences us. What is his perspective of us when we receive him in Holy Communion? Okay, so when I come forward and receive Jesus's body inside my own, what does he see? And I think the Lord has, has just revealed time and time again what that looks like for him. So in this moment when we receive him in our flesh, Jesus reverences, he honors our thoughts, our feelings, our memories, our bodies, all of our lives as great, as profound treasures. He's tender and gentle in our wounds, our fears, our anxieties, our pains, our crosses. I think by his, the very nature of his willingness to be present in the Eucharist shows us that we are sacred. His willingness to come to us, yes, in communion and receive, uh, to be received into our bodies, but uh, in a way I can't describe that is different um, in adoration, like that he would choose just to actually always dwell inside that tabernacle just in case someone walks in and wants to say hi. That he would make himself that present for each of you. You must be something so incredibly sacred. That he would be present in the monstrance whenever, <laughs> basically whenever we want, right? Just in case one person is before him. Um, as Christians, we've, we give our complete selves to the Lord. Uh, that's part of our baptism, is we belong to him. Um, and he sees the entirety of ourself, even what we don't know, what remains hidden from us. And he's so grateful for that. Um, Jesus actually sees and he receives the totality that we desire to give, even when we don't know how. So often, I want to give more to the Lord, but I don't think I have any more to give, or I don't know how, or I can't quite seem to get over whatever I'm holding back. But the thing is, whenever I doubt whether I've given Jesus a total self-gift, it's silly to be concerned about it because in his eyes, there is no partial self-gift. How, how is it even possible to, to give part of ourselves? Um, so he sees that it is a total self-gift, even if we are still figuring out how to make that happen. Um, so Jesus' reverence for us, I mean, that is his gratitude for us, right? Um... A few years ago, I was 
just had no idea what to do for Lent. And I was like, I can't put on practices. Like, that. this is just going to make me be harder on myself, and I'm trying to learn to be gentle with myself, so I don't know what to do. So I asked some friends some ad- for advice and to pray for me. And one friend um, suggested that I, I just ask, what is Jesus' prayer for me about who I am, and to pray that every day of Lent. Um, and so I, I did... And I really had the sense that Jesus, like, gave me his magnificat to the Father for me. Like, his prayer of gratitude to God the Father for, for me. Um, and I think that prayer has totally changed so much in my life. But it gives me such a sense of Jesus' gratitude for me. So uh, Jesus' reverence, his gratitude toward us, how does that affect us? What does it do? Well, like I've shared, it changes how we view ourselves. Um, it teaches us to be compassionate, um, teaches us to recognize his gratitude, to live without judgment toward ourselves. Um, and then when we receive from him, then we can treat others as he treats us. So we first receive from Jesus in the Eucharist to ourselves, and then we're able to take that out and, and uh, treat others with such reverence in turn. Because the reality is, right, like each of us um, are made in the image and likeness of God. And for me, when I know the, the way the Lord views me, I can start to see his presence in others a lot more. Um, and through our baptism, the Holy Trinity actually dwells in all of us. Okay, the indwelling trinity, like the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit made their home inside of you at your baptism, and they continue to live there. So when we start to recognize this in one another, man, how can I not revere the person before me? Uh, so it transforms how we view others and the world, and um, my prayer is just that uh, in these 40 hours, as you are before Jesus in the monstrance, as, as you gaze at him, that your vision would become more and more aligned to his. Like, Jesus is up here, and, and as you look at him, you start to see closer and closer from his perspective until somehow you're seeing right with him. And you're not, like, here looking there, but you're, you're there with him looking out at the world. Don't know if that makes any sense, but that is my prayer for you, that we would be so conformed to him, that we see the world with his eyes, So, um, as you can tell, I just really feel strongly about the importance of gratitude, reverence, um, and tenderness, especially in the world that we live in. I think it's an antidote to the culture of, of judgment and shame and condemnation and intolerance. All of those things toward ourselves and toward others. Again, Dietrich von Hildebrand said that boredom, which I'm sorry, I taught 12-year-olds for three years, boredom is huge in our culture. Uh, boredom is a punishment for irreverence, von Hildebrand says. Wow. Um, and then another philosopher, um, Donald DeMarco, says that without the special respect for things that we did not make, we remain shut up in our lonely selves 
deprived of a true appreciation for the beauty of both nature and other people. I don't know about you all, but I see that so much in the world, being shut up in ourselves, deprived of appreciation for beauty and others. Uh, and he goes on to say, the world is a perfect environment for teaching us how to worry. But there's a far better lesson to be learned while holding an infant, again, while living in that reverence. So the world is aching for Jesus's revelation, for the revelation from God that um, everything he's already given isn't actually enough. And for the revelation of his gratitude, his reverence for each individual person. So I just want to invite you to some practices to try to cultivate these virtues. So I'll give you some ideas of how to cultivate them. I think the first, uh, which I probably talked about a lot, it's the most profound in my life, (laughs) is to let Jesus show his reverence, his tenderness, and his gratitude for you to yourself. Again, with that spirit of receptivity that Our Lady had. Um, And I invite you to do this especially in your reception of the Eucharist and in your adoration of him. Because adoration particularly is this meeting between Jesus, Jesus's passionate love, his love that says, it isn't enough, I want more of you. A meeting of that and our, our receptivity, our receptivity that says, yes, Jesus, I want more of you too. And this meeting of God's longing for you and your hunger for him will only deepen that hunger and increase your capacity for him. And I believe it it will lead to radically new levels of intimacy with the Lord. So I want to invite you to um, pray these prayers that I've shared with you, the Diane You and the Magnificat. Um, And perhaps even to write your own, your own prayer of thanksgiving to the Lord, of remembering his fidelities to you. Because when we remember his gifts and his faithfulness, it makes it present again. We don't just remember in the past like, I remember my favorite toy as a kid. It's not like that. It's a remembering what Jesus has done for me that makes it present again, and it's like he's doing it all over again. Um, and this is, this is what Eucharistic remembrance is. Right? When Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, it's not just, oh yeah, that one time you um, gave us the Paschal mystery, you suffered, died, and rose again. No, but it actually all happens again when we are at the Mass, and we remember, we make it present again. You're literally there at Calvary. You're there at the empty tomb. You're there as he's ascending into heaven. Um, and, and then the other possible idea of the Holy Spirit and puts it on your heart is just to ask Jesus um, to share with you his prayer of gratitude, his Magnificat to the Father for you. So um, in the time that we have left in this hour, 
uh, I just actually am going to invite you to those prayers. So um, in a, a minute or two here, I'm going to pass out some handouts that just have the prayers that I read, the Diane You and the Magnificat, and some blank space if you feel inspired to write your own prayer. Where has God been? What has he done for you that you thought, this is enough, I need no more? And then he just one-upped himself. Um, but yeah, let the Holy Spirit lead that. Um, and so before, before I close, I just want to share one other prayer with you. I won't give you this one because I don't have it copied, but uh, I think the Holy Spirit wants you to have it. So this, sometimes the Lord, I don't know, inspires me with words. So um, this is a prayer that the Lord gave me. Uh, in the context of receiving him in the Eucharist. So this is just like basically Jesus's perspective toward us when we receive him in our flesh. So I just invite you to hear him say this to you. This is how he feels about you receiving him. No place to lay my head. So you've given me a home I wait in tabernacles of gold, just longing to dwell in the living tabernacle of your flesh. How can I express my gratitude for me, you? You've given me a home, a home in you. I am at home in you. In you, I can rest. I am so pleased, so grateful, so humbled, to dwell here in you, here with you. I can't get away, and I can't get enough. Can't get enough of you. So, if you'll consent, may I come deeper still.